This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself, self-guided, public land, elk hunting learning curve resource where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the Oak Shade Podcast. What's up, y'all? Dan the Fitness Man here signing in. Let's get to it. So today we're bringing on Trail Kreitzer. He works for Go Hunt. Uh, it's a good time to bring him on. We got a little bit of time left before the Wyoming deadline. Uh, Arizona is open. New Mexico is open. Montana will be open. A lot of changes going on. Um, each state, whether they be small, little nuancey changes, or big changes like uh, holding on to your money for five months, <coughs> Wyoming. Yeah, so. Elk season is all about planning and preparing. That's why I love it. That's why we do the camps, give everybody roadmaps to get themselves ready to kick ass in the mountains and enjoy their hunt and have a great opportunity and hopefully get the opportunity to pull your bow back, full draw on a big bull screaming, slobbering. And uh, yeah, it's exciting. So Trail's a pretty good dude, man. Like uh, I don't know him that well. We get to know him well today. We learned a little bit about his background and history, how he got to start in the industry, uh, how long he's worked for Go Hunt, what he does for Go Hunt. He's very technical, so we talk about his technical archery as well as uh, all of his responsibilities at Go Hunt for technical writing and research. Uh, super big nerd in a good way, in a, in a very complimentary way, and a great solid dude, good public land hunter, pretty serious kind of guy. I like it. You're gonna, we're going to touch on uh, Wyoming and Arizona in this interview and just get to know him better, and he's a solid dude. I appreciate you guys choosing Elk Shape. You have a lot of choices out there. We're keeping this podcast sponsor-free, and what I mean by that is uh, you don't have to pay to listen to this thing. I've seen some other podcasts go that Patreon route. That's not us. 
Uh, we are focused on our camps. In fact, when you listen to this, we are doing Elk Shape Camp 3.0, our first camp of the year in Spokane. And then we move right into Redmond, Oregon. There's a few spots left for Redmond, Oregon. So if you're interested in getting going on that, uh, don't wait. Get to it. Uh, Dirk and I are heading into Redmond, Oregon. It's going to be a good time. After that, we head over to Texas. We got a couple of camps in Texas. And then we move to Wisconsin, then Colorado, and bring it back to Vancouver, Washington. So it's pretty exciting uh, time of year to figure out where you're going to hunt and have a plan for the short term. Uh, your plan for the long term, like swing for the fences, and, and a mid-range plan. So tags you can draw every few years and kind of get familiar with certain areas. And if you don't hunt out of state, I highly encourage it. If you can maybe just do one a year or, or even have just one or two states that you're working an angle against, that's good. Uh, I've been doing it for, oh, since about 2006, I got serious in the points game. So I have a lot of points in some states. I've burned some points in some states, and uh, there's a few states I don't know if I'll ever get to hunt, but uh, I'm still trying my best to put uh, myself in a position to have some quality hunts and still do my OTC Walmart tag life. So uh, very, very excited about this weekend. Joel Turner is coming in. Ryan Lampers is coming in. We're even doing backcountry first aid, stop the bleed certification at this camp. And we have Jeff Bynum coming in, working with everybody's budget and financial situation so they can get debt free and, and not hunt and have it compromise their financial portfolio, if you will. And then we have Josh Jones coming in, teaching the technical archery. So uh, Joel is pretty cool because he can do the shot IQ and, and cure that target panic nonsense as well as he's an elk whisperer. It's going to be pretty exciting. So... Yeah, if you haven't had a chance, check out 90 Days to Freedom. It's our home gym program for 90 days, 90 workouts, 80-something videos, private, so you can do it. It's a download, so you have it. You don't have to, like, resubscribe or anything like that. Once you get it, you got it. You can do it. You can tweak it. You can scale it up, scale it down. So that's on our website, and it's a hell of a lot cheaper than some of the people out there that are making programs for hunters. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, check that out. Appreciate you guys. Let's get to it. This is Trail, and you listen to the Elk Shape Podcast. Hey, can you hear me okay? Yes, sir. Okay, sorry. I, uh, I had to borrow some, some headphones and get my mic set up. Apologize. No, we're good to go, brother. Um, you got the office? Yeah. Yep, just here in my office. Oh, you work uh, You work from home, don't you? Uh, I actually have a – we have a Cedar City office, so there's – five of us now i think up here in cedar city in southern utah we have like a little office space that's uh, above a little tire and axle place nice you know i have been to cedar city utah oh yeah what for uh i actually used to work for a guy uh his name's mike dimming i think he still lives there and he runs um like sportsman's sportsman's warehouse publication that goes in all he runs that out of there, out of that. And so my first uh, job in the hunting industry was uh, selling advertising for his publication in like 2006 and seven. Yep, he may he may still live here. I know the name. I'm trying to to think. I may have run into him. Um, I was on a plane to Alaska one time, and I think I ran into him going on a black tail hunt. There was him and like two other guys that I know from St. George that were with him. Yeah, yeah. There's a guy that co-owns it out of St. George, like named Kent Danjanovich. Yep. Yeah, dude. Cool. Well, thanks for, thanks for coming on today, man. I'm excited to get to know you. Uh, pretty much have read some of your stuff on Go Hunt. I'm a member of Go Hunt. 
and I've, I've plugged you guys quite a bit throughout the years just because I feel like it's one of the best resources out there. Well, let's get to know your story. How long have you been at Go Hunt? Uh, so coming on three years, uh, be three years in April. Okay. And so you do a lot of research for the company. What And I know you're in charge of gear as well. Give us kind of a breakdown of your day-to-day and, and what your responsibilities are at Go Hunt. Yeah. So uh, primarily this time of year, starting in really in December all the way through May, and then maybe even into to June and July with some of those later draws. Um this year, I'm just like real heavy into to application strategy. So a lot of the application strategy articles that you'll see come out uh, are articles that, that all have done the research for and then written. Um, we try to divide it up between a few of us here in the, on the staff, but I typically end up with like Wyoming. Um, seems like I've done New Mexico and Utah. Uh, I'm trying to think what other states I've done. Arizona, um, Colorado. So really this time of year, I'm just, I'm looking at uh, draws. I'm looking at harvest statistics. I'm looking at trophy potential. I'm talking to guys that have hunted different units and outfitters and game wardens and biologists and, and just really trying to, to crunch data and, and look at uh, some application strategy stuff. So that's kind of my day to day. I handle a lot of the hunting questions that come in. So if people have questions on, you know, where to apply or how to apply, uh, typically, those go to me, and then uh, I'm also always handling um, questions for for gear. So if guys have questions for you know a new backpack, or you know we're just kicking into the boot market, if guys are looking for a new pair of boots, um, you know I'm going to be the guy that they talk to. Yeah, so you guys have definitely grown since I became a member back in the days when I started. There were zero comments on any units on the Insider, so you know there was, and now. It's almost like you got you can read comments like a forum almost and, and gain information there. And you guys have to keep track of all those comments and try to answer those as fast as possible. And uh, it's grown considerably. It really has because you guys are doing a great job. So well, yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, it's uh, it's labor intensive for sure. It's oh. uh, it's really cool to, to to hear from people. And you've been a you've been a member for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I. Honestly, I, I've bounced around from different resources, but it's a lot to manage, as you know, your your kind of your portfolio. And when you take hunting as serious as we do, it's it's pretty important to have the best information to try to make the best plan every year. And every year, I kind of come away from the season going, ah, "There's there's more to be desired on either the 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 back end, the planning, and the strategy to maximize your fall." And this year's no different. I mean, I had some great tags. I had some great hunts. But, man, the older I get, the more I'm looking about quality versus quantity. What I mean by that is, like, I spent 24 days in Idaho with two over-the-counter elk tags. And that's a lot of time away from the family and, and obligations. And I feel like there's there's probably better hunts out there. And so I'm always kicking myself, like, in October, there's a lot of good hunting to that could be found in October and November. And so a guy like me likes to kind of spread out his his hunting season in the fall from August to December and kind of like dedicate some really good time, but uh, not a lot of time, if you will. So, and that's of the essence, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, I, I don't know, how old, how old are you, Dad? I'm old, 38. Okay. Yeah. So I just turned 40 in November and, uh, I, I'm similar to you in, in the same sense. I'm, I'm trying to, I don't know, maybe slim down my hunts and, and just really try to focus on maybe one or two or, 
or maybe three. It's hard to walk away from hunting, uh, but I, I'm really trying to, to focus in on, on quality. Uh, I think back on, on some of the hunting I used to do when I worked for the, the Division of Wildlife, um, I didn't have a ton of days off, you know? So, like, I, I put a lot of days into scouting on weekends. And, uh, you know, my hunting was really, I was trying to target, you know, an animal, one mature animal that I was really excited about. And, and I think back onto those uh, experiences, those are actually some of like the most satisfying and fulfilling hunts that I've been on. And I think moving forward, I'm, I'm kind of like you, I'm trying to focus in on, on a quality type of experience and hunt maybe uh, versus just a, a ton of days in the field spread out across a bunch of different states. Mm, yeah, less is more. And I think that just comes with age. So you have a family you have three kids. What's their ages? Uh, yeah, so I have uh, my oldest will be 15 in June. Uh, so he's been hunting for a few years. Uh, I've got a 10-year-old, and then I've got another one that will be seven here in a week. Oh, my gosh. Okay, yeah, so you have to add that into the equation, right, Trail? Like, it's not just about trail anymore. you got to be able to get the right time for the kids. It seems like all the uh, family men that I've talked to that have kids in the hunting uh, program – they kind of almost carve out October for some of those youth seasons. What have you guys been doing with your oldest? Yeah, I think, I mean, primarily I wanted to get him out and have a good experience first and foremost. And so I think uh, an antelope hunt is just tough to beat for youth. Uh, so I took him to Wyoming in his first year and uh, we, we hunted antelopes in the unit. We, we drew that as a second choice. Um, I'd done some research and, and digging. I knew we'd end up having to do some hiking, but I knew that there was enough uh, public land to access that we could have a pretty good hunt. And once we got into it, I mean, it was it was just exactly that. And it wasn't an October hunt, um, which, like you said, it's a great time frame to, to get your kids out and hunt. It's not too cold. You know, you're not freezing to death. Um, you know, it's also just a, a great time to, to get your kids into the field. But yeah, I think, you know, we saw a bunch of antelope, um, game-rich environment, especially if you've ever hunted Wyoming for antelope, they're, they're almost everywhere. So I was able to get him on a on a couple of opportunities, and he took a great little buck, and, you know, we packed it out, and it was an awesome experience. Um, I think mule deer is a great species to get kids involved uh, in hunting, and so I've done that here in Utah where we live. Uh, I've been buying in points where it makes sense. Um, you know, Colorado, Arizona, the, the points are cheap for youth. Um you know, I apply them in Nevada and, and anywhere that I can afford to. Uh, and then I think just like antlerless elk. I mean, I took him out this year here in Utah on a, an easy-to-draw antlerless elk hunt. Um, and, and he was able to take a, a cow elk, which was awesome. I mean, for him, <laughs> I, it was funny because we, we saw this, this cow and a calf come out of a little draw. I was 138 yards. I got him set up on his uh, shooting sticks. And, you know, he made a great shot and, and tipped this elk over. And... You know, I can see that excitement, and and I can tell you, for me, I mean, it kind of took me back to to the you know the days when it was you know you were learning and you're excited about hunting and, and excited for those experiences. And I still am, but it's just it was really cool to to live that with him. Oh yeah, I can't wait for those days, man. That fires me up. So, so how you old, uh, how old is your oldest? Uh, she's five. She might be the hunter in the family. I can't tell yet. Uh, and then my son's three. They're young, so we'll we'll see. She's already asking me about hunter safety and in Washington. I don't think there's an age requirement. I know I got mine when I was 10 and she's way smarter than I ever was at her age. So she might, she might want to, but she shows interest and we've started taking her shed hunting. She found some sheds and we've taken her, we took her to a really good place to shed hunt in New Mexico. So she kind of got that vibe and, um, we're going to take her turkey hunting this year just to, to be next to mom when mom, 
shoots the face off of a turkey. Uh, that'll be cool and just kind of get her reps. And I think my son will be a monster too. I think he'll be into it, but, uh, he's super young, but I'm, I'm excited, man. Um, when you were working for the division of wildlife, I'm assuming Utah, and I don't know how long you worked there, but what did, how long were you there for? And what was your title? What was your responsibilities? Yeah. So I, uh, I started, uh, see, I was going to school, so my degrees in wildlife science, and I was working for the uh, the Forest Service in in Richfield. Uh, and I was working for the the biologist there, just doing habitat improvement projects. So I got a ton of experience, um, you know, doing that. I was I was running, you know, cat. Um, you know, I, I got to push some fire line. I did some harrow projects. I did some uh, painted juniper uh, juniper uh, removal projects when I worked there, and then uh, it worked transitioned nicely into uh, a position that I took with the, the Utah Division of Wildlife, which was um, as a habitat biologist. So I was the, the habitat biologist here in the southern region um, out of Cedar City for, I think, about six years. Um, and primarily that job, I mean, it was, um, you know, habitat restoration, which was awesome. Um, it was really cool. Um, when I first started there, I got to do a bunch of small scale, so I'm talking maybe two to 500 acre um habitat restoration projects, mostly uh, sagebrush step restoration, a lot of pinion and juniper uh, removal, and you know, reseeding uh, after after wildfires, that kind of stuff. And then eventually it worked its way into, a, there's a really cool program that Utah has here where they actually combine federal money with state money. And at that point, um, they can put together really like large landscape scale projects. So it went from, um, you know, me maybe doing a 200 acre project to uh, working with the BLM or the Forest Service and doing like a 2000 or 2500 acre project. So um, and then they got to do multiple of those. And, and at that point, like I was doing uh, lots of money management, I was paying a lot of bills. I was doing a lot of contract writing, um, doing really cool things on landscape, but it wasn't quite the same job uh, as it was when I started. Yeah, cool, cool job nonetheless. I mean, tons of really neat opportunities. Well, I'm sure you get this question a lot because I know I do. In I don't even feel like I'm in the industry. I kind of always try to keep one foot out to for personal reasons. I just, but uh, a lot of folks always want to know, man, how do I get into the hunting industry? I want a job in there, and uh, you obviously work for Go Hunt, which to me seems like a pretty badass community of people. Um, just from what I've seen and the guys I've met, um, I'm pretty good friends with Brady. I've known him before his go hunt days and I've always respected him, but how did you get your foot in the door and, and, uh, how can guys maybe follow suit and tell them the good, the bad and the ugly? Yeah. Um, so I would say, I mean, the, the answer I typically give people is, it's just like, follow your, your passion, like the things that you're really interested in and, I mean, even, you know, I went into wildlife because I love the mountains. I love being, you know, in the back country and I love hiking and hunting. Um, so I would say, you know, that's why I got into that profession. And then at that point I was saving all my, I worked for the, the DWR, I was saving all my leave and, and, you know, sick time and annual leave, anything that I could have for, for hunting season. And it was what I really wanted to do. And I was spending just a bunch of time scouting on weekends and, um, you know, like I said, I was I was trying to target an older age class animal. I was hunting maybe one or two hunts a year, and, and just really trying to do that. And I and I had some success. I killed some nice bucks and and a few good bulls. And I I think it's just from following your passion. You know, it's stuff that I was really interested in. And then um, just kind of luck would have it. I had a neighbor uh, that took a job with Go Hunt, uh, and he started out. His name was Cody Smith, and 
uh, when Go Hunt first started, they were looking for guys to uh, contribute, you know, content, whether that was like skills articles or how tos or uh, unit profiles. And so he asked if I'd be interested in doing that. So I did that and uh, jumped in and started writing those and just started kind of developing more that way. And then, um, you know, eventually Go Hunt offered me a full time position. And, um, you know, the good of it is that, you know, you get to work for Go Hunt. It's an awesome. You know, it's an awesome company, bunch of really, you know, great guys that love to hunt, um, really cool product. Uh, the gear shop is just, you know, going gangbusters and I'm a gear junkie. So I'm super into that and, you know, picking equipment. I mean, that's right up my alley. So super cool opportunity. Um, you know, and then you get to hunt, right? So I get to fall to a bunch of days in the fall to hunt. You know, last year, I think I hunted, you know, five or six states. I, I can't remember at this point, but I did a lot of hunting this fall. Uh, and then, you know, you asked about the downside. I mean, it's a job, <laughs> job, yeah. a job, a job, right? Yep. Um, so this time of year, I mean, I'm working six, seven days a week sometime. Um, I'm putting long hours in behind the computer and, and really, like I said, from December, maybe to May, man, I'm getting lots and lots of screen time. So I would say that's kind of the, the downfall of it. If there is a downfall. Yeah. That sounds like, uh, you know, a sweet gig, but a lot of work, but it'll be worth it. It's pretty front loaded. You know, you're, you're hitting it hard. As soon as Alaska rolls around December application season has started. And then you're probably looking for oxygen come June, try to come up for air and plus plan your own hunts and all that stuff. That's great. Um, I'm a huge fan of go hunt. I think we should probably give a little background as to what go hunt offers for those that maybe have heard of it, but have never really looked into it. And then I think I want to dive a little bit into your recap of your season and then drive right into Wyoming, Arizona. So what's the background? What is go hunt.com? Yes, I think maybe the easiest way to explain it is, is kind of give a little backstory on how it started. Um, so we started with uh, the president, his name is Lorenzo Sartini. Uh, he owns Go Hunt. Um, he actually grew up in Las Vegas, uh, went to, to college in Montana to play football, uh, got up there. He loved to hunt. When he got up there, he just found out, you know, how hard it is to, to figure out a different state's um, application and draw system and, and how everything works. And as he was sorting through and trying to figure it out, he just thought, you know, there's got to be a better way to, to do this. And, you know, he also could see that, um, you know, if you want to hunt uh, more often, you know, you've got to be looking at out of state, especially if you grew up in Nevada, right, because opportunities mm-hmm. are pretty limited. So that's kind of the brainchild behind it. Um, you know, he, he he started uh, acquiring people uh, that knew how to, you know, build a website and he started bringing more people in that, that knew the data and could work with the data and the draws and all those different things. And we started to put together this site called, you know, gohunt.com. So um, I would say primarily what it is, is a research platform. So it's a, a subscription service. It's $149 a year. Um, when you sign up for that, you're going to sign up and get uh, a username and a password, which you will sign in with. And uh, at that point, um, it's this extensive uh, research platform. So we cover things like draw odds. We cover uh, the odds for every species in 13 Western states, uh, including you know antlerless so female species. If you're looking to, to draw a cow elk tag, we cover those odds. Uh, and then we developed this really cool little filtering system uh, that we call Filtering 2.0. So you can click on any state that you might be interested in researching. Um, say, for example, Colorado. 
Uh, you could pull up, um, you know, the species, so say mule deer, and at that point you're going to get this interactive map with all the different units, and then you have this series of filters uh, that are built into this that you can use to further fine-tune uh, your search. So you can search for things like trophy potential or harvest success or uh, even season. So if you're only interested in archery hunting, you can just hit the archery uh, season, and you're going to see that that map's going to populate uh, just down to those hunts that you're interested in. Um, and then at that point, you could actually click on any given unit on the map, uh, and it's going to open up a unit profile. So every unit in the, in uh, any state uh, has a unit profile. Uh, that's going to give you information about access, uh, vegetation descriptions, terrain descriptions. You're going to see things like buck-to-doe ratios or bull-to-cow ratios or uh, harvest success over five years. Um, you're going to see the individual draw odds for each hunt within that unit profile. So there's just like tons of information there to really kind of help you fine tune um, and, and find the hunt that you're looking for. Um, we cover all the seasons, so all the draw hunts, all the over-the-counter options that, that, that exist. Um, you know, we do application strategy articles, which I mentioned earlier, which is I'm, I'm pretty heavily involved in writing those and working on those to give people kind of a heads up on how to apply or where to apply, um, help them understand the draw systems. Uh, and then, I mean, we opened the gear shop a couple of years ago. I think this will be our third full year. Um, and we have this cool little point system built into the, the process where if you're a member of GoHunt, you're an insider, any product that you buy from our gear shop, we're going to give you points back on your purchase for being a member. And, you know, one point equal to $1. You can then use that towards any other purchase that you want in the gear shop. So, I mean, that's a lot, and I've, I've talked for a long time, but that's kind of what GoHunt is. It's a research platform to help guys find hunting opportunities. Um, we want people to get out and go hunting, and then, like I said, we want to be a, you know, we want to be a, a gear shop, and we want to be a, you know, I would say a um, an authority on, you know, hunting, on, on how to go hunting. Yeah, so behind the scenes, once you're a member, then you can actually read those strategy articles, right? That's it. Yeah, those are only available to, to guys that are members. And you guys have always stated that your draw odds are extremely accurate. Is there is there a certain art to figuring out if your draw odds are, are super dialed? Or do you guys figure out, like, you maybe just cracked a code, you got Rain Man over there who can figure out the numbers? What's what's that all about? Yeah, I it's a combination of things. Um, initially we went out and, and did a pretty extensive search and found a, uh, a data scientist, the guy that works with statistics, um, you know, that has a PhD and that kind of thing. Um, you know, I took statistics in college. I can tell you that I'm definitely not that guy. Same um, here. I un- <laughs> worst, <laughs> I, my worst I, grade I, uh, in college was statistics yeah, by far. Me, me too. Yeah. Calculus and t- statistics. Um, and maybe OCHEM too, but, um, yeah, we, we, we hired a third-party guy that uh, is a, a statistician and works with numbers and data. And, uh, you know, we sat down with him, and, you know, we've got Brandon Evans here in our office who kind of knows the ins and outs of all the state's draw systems. I mean, he lives in that system in those worlds just day-to-day, uh, especially this time of year. But um, we all sat down together and worked through the, the state's draw systems and then, um, you know, worked back and forth and back and forth and, you know, looked at odds, looked at the different state systems, and and I think that's where it comes from. It's just a combination of somebody that knows numbers and knows statistics, and then a bunch of guys that know the ins and outs of the state draw system. That's great. I, it's a great resource, and you, I think you can still try it for free. Usually, at some point throughout the year, maybe not this time of year, but um, 
it's worth it's worth looking into. It's a is it 149 bucks a year? Yeah, yeah, 149. And um, we do do a free trial, like you said. It's typically from like June to October timeframe to to give guys a, that are interested an opportunity to check it out. Definitely. Uh, it's to me, it's worth it. I probably am on go hunt. The the times I'm on go hunt the most is actually right after September. I start planning 2020 in October. I started like researching as much as I can. And then obviously once the application season starts, which it's, it's here, I'm on there way too much. And there's some deep, deep rabbit holes you can go down and, and we're going to talk about strategy. And that's why we have you on. Here's a subject matter expert today. Um, while I got you on here, since we're talking about gear, I'm going to utilize you. I am in the market for a new sleeping bag. I, I'm about 160 pounds soaking wet and I'm really, I'm under 10% body fat just because I got a fast metabolism, pretty active guy. I struggle to stay warm and I generally hunt from August through the end of September a lot, but then I will usually do a one to two hunts in October, November. And a lot of times they're in a teepee in the cold, cold. And I, I've struggled to stay warm trail. So I'm running a 20 degree pretty much I think I have a Slumberjack and a Kelty. Both are 20 degrees. Both suck for me. I'm sleeping in my clothes. I got a stove on. I brought a little buddy heater. I get cold easy. So I'm looking for a zero degree bag that weighs less than three pounds. Any suggestions? Um, at zero degrees, you're going to be hard pressed to, to be three pounds. Um, it, that's a, a pretty, you know, it's a tall order. I would say we have a couple options and, and I would kind of steer you towards those and, and have you at least jump on online and check them out. But, um, so Western Mountaineering is a brand that we carry. Um, you know, they're not a, a hunting brand by any means, um, but they make phenomenal sleeping bags. I would say probably them and maybe Feathered Friends, which is out of Washington there, uh, where you're from. Um, probably make the best quality down sleeping bags. Uh, as far as loft goes, I mean, they are almost unmatched. Um, in fact, it's, I've told this story a few times, but like they're one of my, my favorite companies. And, and when I met with them at uh, outdoor retailer, um, one of their reps gave me the full story on their down and like, they have their own little, you know, down farm in, in Poland where they have these geese that they've bred specifically to, to produce these giant down clusters. And they live in this little, you know, free range area and they kind of go down to the pond in the day and then they have people go in and collect the down and they take these big clusters and, you know, put them all together and then they end up shipping over here to the States. But um, I can tell you that unequivocally they have the most loft. They're super warm. So I would say uh, look at the Western Mountaineering Versalite. Uh, which is a 10 degree bag, but has a ton of loft and you're actually only into it two pounds. So, you know, you're under, Dang. you know, well under three, well under three pounds. And I would say I'm a little bit like you. I'm definitely not as lean as you. Um, you know, I run most days. I'm, I'm definitely not down uh, in the body fat category that you are, but I do get cold really easy, especially in my extremities. And that's been my go-to bag. Um, they do make a zero degree bag called the Kodiak, which is also, you know, just an absolutely killer bag. And would, I promise would keep you warm at, mm -hmm. at zero degrees, but you're going to be, you know, closer to three pounds and, and maybe slightly more on that bag. Roger that. Well, briefly, give us um, a few of your best sellers or must haves when guys are thinking about gear, uh, gear upgrades for 2020. And maybe just touch on how your guys' system works as a retailer buying online from you guys. 
Yeah, so I, I'm a huge fan of, um, I think you have to have a good sleep system, just like you said. So I tell people a lot, uh, if you're, you know, if you're spending money uh, in new equipment uh, beyond your weapon and a permit, uh, I would say look at a sleep system, you know, look at boots, um, you know, footwear is important. If you got sore feet, you're going to be miserable and you're definitely not going to be able to get the job done. Um, if you can't sleep, it's a similar situation. If you're cold at night and can't get rest, uh, you just definitely don't feel like hunting. Um, a good down bag is expensive. So the ones that we just talked about, I mean, you're looking at, you know, 575 bucks or even 710 bucks for the zero degree bag. That's real money. I mean, it's expensive. Um, I will tell you, though, that a down, a really good quality down bag is going to last you for, you know, 25, 30 years. You can take care of it and probably longer. If you don't stick that thing in a stuff sack and store it in your basement, and you just, you know, hang it over a, a hanger or put it in a loose bag uh, where it comes off, it's going to serve you for a really long time. So I would say, you know, think about updating your sleep system. Um, you know, you can cut some weight. You're definitely going to feel better. Um I just mentioned boots uh, for 2020. We're getting into the, the boot category. We're going to carry a bunch of different brands. Um, so if you have uh, you know a new uh, a hunt coming up, whether that's high country mule deer or you know pronghorn out in the desert in Nevada, um, we're going to have a boot or a, a piece of footwear that can you know suit your needs. So I would say, you know, sleep system boots. Um, you know, that's that's typically the the ones that I go to for guys. Definitely. And now you guys have some sort of point system in your store. I actually haven't purchased anything, but I'm probably going to be getting a sleeping bag from you guys soon. Um, how does that work? Yeah. So if you're a member, um, any, any gear that you buy with us, uh, you're going to get points back on your purchase. So for example, uh, I just noted that Western Mountaineering Kodiak uh, zero degree bag. That's a $710 bag. If you buy it from us or if you buy it from, you know, anywhere, it's going to be the same price. But if you're a member and you buy it from us, we're going to give you 75 points back on your purchase, which is $75. So one point's $1. Uh, you know, you can take that $75 and put it towards any other purchase that you want in the gear shop in the future. So if you need a new headlamp, um, you know, if you need a couple packs of broadheads, um, you know, anything, you can take your points and purchase those items. All right. That's awesome. So let's recap your season a little bit. I know it might be foggy. You hunted a lot, but maybe just the highlights of your season and uh, just kind of where you went and what you experienced. Sure. Uh, I drew an archery antelope tag in Nevada. I uh, kicked off um, you know, early August and was able to take a nice buck with my bow. Um, that was a super cool hunt. I, I have kind of a, an affinity an affection, I guess, for, for antelope hunting. I really like it. They're just cool animals. And so um, I had a really good time. It was super hot, but you know, I loved it. Um, after that, I think I jumped into a uh, archery elk hunt just on a general season tag um, with a, another guy that works here in our content department. His name's Chris Neville. Uh, and he and I went up and did a, a backpack hunt for nine days. Um, I killed a bull, I think, on the seventh day, sixth or seventh day. He killed a, a bull on the ninth day, and uh, we ended up packing two bulls out in two days. Um, I got that done. Um, I sent him with my bull uh, to the butcher, and then I drove to the airport in Salt Lake and spread out all my gear in the parking lot of the economy parking lot there in Salt Lake city at the airport and kind of reorganized my gear and then threw that together and jumped on a plane and flew to Alaska 
Um, I met a buddy up there, um, Steve Opat's his name, and uh, he and I took a, a little a little raft that was we'd flown into this little tiny town um, in south central or southwest Alaska, and uh, took the boat about 40 miles up uh, the river, and we hunted moose for I want to say eight or nine days. Um, we killed you know two two bull moose. Um, I killed a 62 inch bull. He killed a 60 inch bull. Uh, it took us the better part of probably four days to pack those two out mm. and, um, you know, another couple of days travel time and, and processing time to get those cut up and processed. And then, uh, flew back to Utah. Um, I think I was in, in the office for maybe two weeks. And then, uh, I drawn a mountain goat tag here in my home state of Utah after 17 years of applying. And, um, that was in the high Uintas. Uh, kind of up there in the corner on the border of Wyoming and um, backpack hunted that. It was, um, I think, 13 and a half miles one way uh, in and uh, ended up shooting a goat at uh, about 13,200 feet, which, man, that's high. I don't know if you've, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever hunted that. And, and I've been up in elevation, but man, that, uh, that was a pretty wild hunt. It was just so crazy to be that high uh, in elevation and just that far in. How did how did you do with that altitude? You know, I did okay. Um, I I'd, I'd hunted, you know, Wyoming. We were hunting above ten thousand feet. Um, I, I didn't have any kind of altitude sickness, no headache, or you know, any any issues that way or fatigue. Um, mostly, it was just hard to get oxygen. I mean, I, I thought I was in pretty good shape. Um, but man, it's, there's just no air up there. It's, it's tough to breathe. Mm. It was, it was rough. <laughs> um, yeah, the last 2000 foot of that, I mean, we camped, I think at like 11, two, and then we ended up climbing up to about 13, two, and it was super steep. Um, mostly just boulder filled and yeah, I mean, that took us a long time to, to get up. And then once we, we actually harvested this goat and then coming down, I mean, I think we hit camp, um, you know, maybe midnight. It was a long, long day. Oh, wow. That's the best. Yeah. Yeah. Full, full trip. Um, and then I had a really cool hunt just to kind of cap things off. Um, I had a friend, um, Ben Shells, his name, he works at Matthews. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if you know Ben, but he, he invited me out at a trade show, um, one time just to come out and hunt whitetail in Wisconsin, which is something I'd always wanted to do. And then, you know, I've been a huge archery junkie for, for a long time, and uh, I've always really liked Matthew's bows, and, and I've shot those on and off for a bunch of years. But um, I was able to fly back and, and hunt whitetail with him for a few days, and I got to tour the Matthew's factory, which was another cool opportunity. But that was that was kind of it. And then, uh, yeah, I guess I killed a, I went out and shot a cow elk this last Saturday, but <laughs> started off 2020. I know. I'm always jealous of you guys in Utah that get to do that first of the year cow hunt, man. Um, I got a couple super jealous. You just get your freezer stock, get your first kill. Uh, you're out in the mountains. It's awesome. Okay, so let's go through a couple of those before we get to some draw stuff. Uh, number one, antelope, deer, and near to my heart. Love them. I think they're delicious. I got a lot of points uh, in Nevada, and so I'm curious as to – uh, how many points did you burn? And more importantly, like, what was it, what was it like as far as, I mean, they're stingy with their tags. So I imagine you had the place to yourself damn near. Yeah. I'm trying to remember if I actually saw another hunter. I don't, I don't think that I did. Um, 
Yeah, and they are they're stingy with their tags, and they have some great quality. Uh, I would say I think I had five points um, mm-hmm. that I burned, and it was on an archery tag, and you know I, it was in uh, I want to say what one thirty one, one thirty four, and then I think you have two forty five that sits right down there, just uh, north of area fifty one, um, which is kind of funny, but um, yeah, I mean I, I drew that tag, and and I would say, I mean I don't know how many 80 inch antelope are you ever going to, you know, harvest in, in your life? I actually harvested one in Utah. It's been probably a bunch of years ago for, so for me at this point, like I want to try to target a, a mature buck, but I mean, you know, an 80 inch antelope is, you know, I've, I've, I've got one. So it's not like I'm hung up on a score, you know? Um, and, and I saw some great bucks. I mean, I, I legitimately saw an 80 inch buck. I actually shot my buck, took care of it, got it in the truck and was headed out. And I had a, a legit 80 inch buck run across the road in front of me. Um, which yeah. I got to just sit and sit and look at for a minute. I'd scouted pretty hard and I don't know where he came from, but, uh, it was kind of cool. But, um, yeah, I would say if you've only got a few points, um, you know, I would say take a really hard look at the, uh, the archery hunt. Um, you know, very, very few people, very low hunting pressure. Um, you know, enough antelope that you can have a really good hunt in almost any unit in the state. And like I said, phenomenal quality. I mean, on a wet year, you could really have, you know, a chance at an 80-inch buck, no problem. What was it like as far as hunting in that terrain? Were you set out to do spot and stock? Did you have water hole backup plans? Like, what were you thinking? Yeah, I had uh, I'd scouted with Google Earth and just looked, you know, really hard for water sources. Um, you know, that area is super hot. I think daytime highs were over 100, uh, where it's in August. Uh, when I went out and looked at the train and, and kind of saw where the antelope were hunting, it didn't or were hanging out. It didn't look like there'd be a lot of opportunity for for spot and stock. There's just hardly any topography at all to use, and the vegetation is really low growing. It's you know mostly broom snakeweed and, and some sagebrush and stuff. So I didn't know if I'd have a lot of opportunity. Um, it was a little early. It's not really you know rut. You know there were some bucks hanging with does, but they weren't acting real ruddy. Um, the first weekend I went out and hunted, uh, I tried some decoying, I tried some spot and stock. Um, I want to say probably the closest I got was maybe 110 yards, um, just on a small buck. Uh, the next weekend when I went out, I thought, you know, I'm just going to use a, a couple of pop-up blinds. I'm going to hit some of these water holes because it had been so hot and so dry. I knew mm-hmm. that, you know, it had to be hit, hitting water holes. So, um, that's how I ended up hunting was, um, you know, out of a, a blind on a water hole and that's how I ended up taking my buck and. There's a lot of people that don't, you know, they don't like that kind of hunting over, you know, out of a blind and it's extremely hot. Um, but for me, I actually really enjoy it. I mean, I can sit in there in a pair of shorts and a black t-shirt, you know, with a cooler and some, you know, Diet Cokes on ice and, and I can chill out and read a book and, and hunt over a water hole and I don't mind the heat. So for me, I don't mind it. Dude, people don't even know what it's like sitting in a ground blind in Nevada when it's August, it takes some mental fortitude, and especially if you start pulling back-to-back days, all-day sits, dark-to-dark. I mean, it's another level of mental game, just like whitetail hunters and tree stands, you know, those real hardcore pursuits. Um, did you see any rattlesnakes? Didn't see any rattlesnakes. Woo-hoo. No, I was fortunate that way. Yeah. I hate and, rattlesnakes. And I w- yeah, me too. Now, when you're shooting antelope from a ground blind, y'all, there's there's an art to getting your bow pulled back, and they are they are so ready to like they're paranoid they're on crack, and I imagine that's probably what you experienced. So, <laughs> give us some best practices when you are going to pop up blind for antelope. Like, 
Do you have your bow down to a lower poundage so you can draw away early and hold for a long time? Um, like, what are the, some inside tips on that real quick since we're on the topic? Yeah, I actually like to set my, and I guess first I'll touch on that, but I actually like to set my ground blind uh, up kind of on the, like the kitty corner. So like a diagonal. So I've got two sides and kind of a corner is facing the, the water hole that I want to shoot out of. Uh, and I like to do that so that I've got windows on the two sides uh, and then I can kind of shut and move, um, you know, windows up or down depending on where the uh, the light is. And then the other thing I like, I like about that is that I can tuck myself in that back corner and I can keep myself kind of hidden, you know, back in that back corner where it's darkest. And I think for me, that's, that's probably the biggest tip is you got to remember you know, if an antelope comes in and he's kind of looking through your blind, you know, any kind of movement at all inside that, he's going to see it. So you want to kind of remove, your, remove yourself back into a corner so that your any movement that you do make isn't going to be seen uh, by approaching antelope. So that's kind of one tip. And then the other thing about that is, um, you know, I got a 30-inch draw, so, you know, my arm's going to come way back and my bow's going to be sticking way out there. So sitting that kind of diagonal gives me the most room. Uh, to draw my bow and, and actually execute a shot. So um, that's a couple of tips. Um, I usually just take a regular camp chair. I don't like the, the camp chairs that have, you know, they're kind of bowed in the bottom. Those are hard to set in. Um, if you got a good blind chair, that works. But if you get a camp chair, get one that's got like a nice base that's flat, uh, that gives you some structure that you can actually, you know, sit up in and, and get a nice stable base before you execute your shot. Um, and then for me, you're right. I mean, those antelope, when they come in, they are spring loaded. Um, it always helps if they've got some does with them. So if you've got some antelope, uh, you know, a, a mature buck that's coming in with some does, um, you know, I'm a big proponent of taking the first good shot that you can get, but sometimes with antelope, if you're hunting on a, on a water hole, um, you know, let them get comfortable. So let them come in. Let them mill around a little bit. Let them feed. Let them stick their head in the water. Um, I, I, I've had a whole lot better luck trying to draw on antelope bucks after I've let them, like, you know, get start getting a drink. It seems like once they commit to actually start getting a drink, they'll let you, you know, get away with a little bit of movement. So that's probably my, my best tips. Those are good tips, and I think shooting from – a chair is something that I strongly encourage folks to practice. I do a, I do some perfect practice scenarios because I'm an antelope guy, so I'm not afraid. I've killed them out of blinds, spot and stock. I don't care. However, I can get an antelope in my freezer. And uh, sitting down can affect your posture, especially if you haven't practiced it. So you can end up shooting low. If you're slouchy, it could change your anchor. Did you use um, a five-pin, three-pin, single-pin on antelope? What would you say is best bet there? I just use the same setup that I'm comfortable with. I'm going to hunt with all fall. So I use a five-pin slider sight. Uh, I'm going to use my 60-yard pin as my slider if I need to, to get a follow-up shot. But um, I just I do have a little like a little bow stand. Um, you know, that's a nice little tip, too. You know, mm. if you've got your bow out there ready, you know, with a little bit of a bow stand that's what's sitting there upright, ready to go. Um just anything you can do to eliminate uh, as much movement as you can is, will help. Yep. Well, while we're on the topic, what release do you use on your setup? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a hinge guy, so I hunt with a hinge. Um, I've been hunting with the same hinge for about, I want to say, probably 10 years at this point. And it's uh, a Trueball uh, HT Pro, so it's a brass four-finger hinge. And... 
I had a really bad bout of target panic, um, which I think started with uh, the year that Matthews came out with the monster. Mm-hmm. Uh, you remember that bow? Mm-hmm. So it's super aggressive bow, fast, fast bow. I mean, way, you know, preloaded uh, limbs and uh, aggressive on the back wall. And for some reason, that just started me with a little bit of uh, target panic. And I got a little bit punchy with my uh, index finger release. And it got to a point where I just, man, I was like hating archery. Like I was ready to quit because I just... Mm couldn't hit what I wanted to you know like every fifth or sixth arrow I'd like miss a you know a target completely and um I had a buddy uh Todd Nebaker that lives here in town an old guy that worked at an archery shop um he just said hey you know here's a hinge it was a a Carter A tension and he said take this and don't shoot anything else just shoot that put your index finger uh release away and just shoot it and so I did, took it home. I actually took my side off and just started blank belling. And I did that for an entire winter. And then, uh, you know, I, I, I try to go back. I try to sneak back to using like a, a thumb trigger release or something like that. And those bad habits had just creeped in. And so finally I just said, you know what, I'm, I'm just done with triggers. I just, I hate to say it, but I'm, I'm like too mentally weak to, to shoot a trigger release. If I shoot a, a hinge, I do great. I'm like real relaxed. I, I make the best shots, um, but with the trigger, I just get jumpy. I think there's a lot of good information there to dive into. Um, time-wise, we can't, but here's the bottom line. like Everybody's going to have some degree of tar- uh, target panic, myself included. The most comments I get on social media is people are fascinated because I am always shooting different releases throughout the year. And I do hunt with a – primarily I hunt with an index – uh, it's a Scott XT. I shoot it like a back tension. To be honest, I, I really do shoot it almost like a hinge. Um, but I don't touch it till it's time to go hunting. I literally just bounce and bounce. So I literally just got the knock to it. Uh, hashtag not sponsored. I just bought it. And in fact, Dudley sent me a, he sent me a text and was like, dude, why didn't you reach out to me? And I'm just like, you, no way, man. Like you're running a business. I'm just here to support you. And I got no problem with that. I, I love Carter releases. I'm a huge fan. So I have several Carter hinge and thumb buttons. And um, I'm always having to shoot different releases to avoid th- my tendency to get punchy. And I think what you said there was really important. Like every bow is a little different. And some bows are going to actually almost promote target panic. And it seems like what you just said about the monster I, I was shooting for Hoyt back then when Monster came out, but just that real aggressive back wall type stuff is kind of the the formula to to catch yourself. Good on you for taking the the side off and like committing to blank bailing. I think that's I blank bail in my office all winter long. And I still shoot outside, but blank bailing has really been and I and I think my biggest weakness when it comes to hunting is is my archery stuff. Like I'm not a Dudley where if if it's under 70 yards, it's like, it's a 10 X, it's a done deal. Like I, I just, my shot opportunities are few and far between and I want to max. I feel like that's the, that's the thing I love about archery the most. I want to finish talking about your setup real quick. So what's going to be your starting bow for 2020 and then just kind of run through your accessories real quick. And then we're going to go into, uh, that'll, I got to hear about your Alaska hunt. Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm shooting a Matthews VXR, the 31 and a half. Um, I had the opportunity to to hunt in Wisconsin uh, when I went back there and hunted whitetail with it. I've been shooting it for a few months, 
Um, and I really like that bow. I mean, I, I've always been a longer axle to axle bow. So prior to, to, to getting that bow, um, I shot the Halon X for five years, I think, which mm-hmm. is, you know, 35 inches axle to axle. So a longer bow, um, which I've always really liked. I've liked the stability of that. And like I said, I've, I've got a long drop, but, um, with the length of this riser on this new BXR, I really like it. It holds really well. Um, I think I'll probably go into to hunting with it this year. I also have a Traverse, um, which I like, and I've been shooting it, uh, you know, quite well too. I, I tend to bounce back and forth between those two. Um, so I'm shooting, um, Bee Stinger, uh, stabilizer. So I'm shooting a, uh, either a 12 or a 15 inch, uh, front bar, the micro hex. Uh, I'm shooting like three to four ounces of weight on that. Uh, and then I'm shooting a back bar, which is a, a 12 inch micro hex. And I'm typically about seven to nine ounces, uh, in weight off the back bar. And then, um, I'm shooting a trophy taker Smackdown pro, um, rest. And it's, it's an old model. I don't think they even make it anymore, but it has the old, uh, pronghorn style, uh, rest. And it's got like a launcher, like a, a launcher, but what do they call it? Like a crash pad for the, the actual, um, fork. So I'm shooting those. I've got three of those and I just love those rests. They're so easy to set up and work with. Um, it's a limb driven rest. I like that. Um, I'm shooting a five pin, um, Excel AccuTouch, uh, pro. So the carbon pro site, um, shooting gold tip, platinum pierce, uh, 300 arrows, uh, shooting, um, Click trick standard 100 grain broadheads, either those or the QAD Exodus, kind of ping pong back and forth between those two. Um, and then, like I said, for release, I'm shooting that uh, Trueball HT Pro uh, four finger. Dude, so you get, I think that's awesome. Um, I'm an archer geek, I love all that stuff. So, you got some pretty legit equipment on there, and you're a tinkerer, which is really cool. I'm, I'm assuming you build your own bows, tune them and all at home. Yeah. Yep. Got my own press and I started doing that probably, yeah, 10 or 15 years ago, somewhere in that neighborhood. It just, it was too bad. You know, I live out in the, I lived out in the sticks at the time. So like to, to make it to an archery shop, it was just tough. And, you know, there was enough information out there that I, I figured I could do my own. So I just got a press and started tinkering and, and just, you know, taking on any information that I could. And yeah, I've just been doing all my own stuff since. Yeah. So the Alaska hunt, um, I'm pretty jealous. I think that's the number two bucket list hunt is Alaska moose. Want a giant, giant 60-inch-plus moose, which is just insane. I've killed one moose in Idaho, but uh, how much research went into this hunt? And most importantly, what went to script and what didn't? Yeah, so as far as like – first i guess i should say that it was like my number one like my bucket list just like you're talking like the the number one hunt that i wanted to do was a you know alaskan bull moose and i'm probably like you i've looked at a lot of different opportunities and you know a guided hunt you're looking at you know anywhere from 16 to to maybe even 20 plus thousand dollars i just thought man there's no way i can afford that um i talked to a ton of guys that had done float trips and some guys will come back and, you know, they'll have got a bull, but maybe only see one or two. You talk to some guys that didn't even see any moose. Exactly. I know those can be tough. Those can be really tough to do. They can be hit or miss. Um, 
my trip actually started just, and I would, I would give this advice to anybody who asked going back to like working in the industry. Um, I would say like network as much as you can. I know it's kind of a silly, you know, like a buzzword network, but like, you know, talk to people, like reach out and talk to, to anyone. Like, and this hunt for me really started with just talking to a guy that was at the Heather's Choice booth uh, at the hunting expo a few years ago at Salt Lake. And I went down there and started talking to him. His name was Steve. We just, you know, he was talking about elk hunting and deer hunting. I was talking about moose hunting. And he just said, hey, I got this kind of a, you know, kind of a pipe dream, this thought of an area that I would like to explore. Um, you know, would you be interested in going on it? And I said, you know, absolutely. That's my dream is to go up and hunt moose. And he goes, you know, it could be hit or miss. I, I have no idea. But, you know, from there, we both kind of started researching. And I would say, you know, Steve did a lot of the research as far as like the logistics on how to, you know, get a boat there, um, you know, where to stay and when. Um, you know, having done it now myself, I could I could definitely mentor and like take somebody and do the same thing that he and I did uh, or pass that knowledge and that information on, you know, whether it's that area or another area. But um, I guess one point I would make is like doing a hunt like that is way more doable than you might think it is, like after having done it. Um so that's what I would, I would say, you know, things that went well, um, you know, gear, the gear that we took, um, he was dialed on his gear, you know, from, I would say one thing that you got to have in a lap is like either a machete or an ax because you're going to end up like chopping through alder. So that's a must have, um, you know, we took a teepee tent set up with a stove that was critical to like be able to stay warm and like dry your gear out. Um, you definitely got to have that. Um, that's a key piece of equipment and gear. Um, I would say like what didn't go to plan, um, hunting in Alaska in general, you're like beholden to the weather. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we came out, uh, we were looking at the weather and kind of trying to decide, you know, what to do, how to get back into town. Um, we ended up going, you know, out in a storm. I mean, we were taking on as much water as I could bail out on the way back, and it got a little bit sketchy at times. Um, but one thing to always be aware of in Alaska is is weather. And, like, you, you might miss some days of hunting, um, so make sure that you plan uh, enough days to, to meet your objectives because you probably are going to lose some days to weather. You're probably going to lose some travel days to weather, so that's something to be, you know, aware of as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, just – you know, be prepared for weather, be prepared to, to kind of relax and, and realize you're probably going to miss some days uh, of travel and hunting due to weather. And then, you know, dig in and do your research and network, you know, talk to people. Yeah, that was critical. So recap your moose hunt a little. How far was the shot? Did you call him in? How far did he go? And dig in on that pack out because I think people here four days of packing meat but don't appreciate we're talking moose meat we're talking moose quarters man and you're in alaska there ain't no atv trail there's no winches or come alongs probably off of your back sweat equity yes yeah, so i went up with the uh the intent to archery hunt to bow hunt took my bow um steve that i went with he took a rifle and his bow uh on the way up the river the first day we got to talking because you know we both got permits and we've got 10 days and we both realized the amount of work involved in you know taking care of two bulls uh so we just started talking and he said so you know right out of the gate how big does the bull have to be to like get you to put down the bow and, and shoot it with a rifle <laughs> i said 
you know, it's my first moose ever. I'm up here on this trip. I've invested. And I said, so if it's, if it's 65 inches, I said, let's just agree to, to get it killed. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was, that was kind of our agreement as we were going up the river. Um, first day, uh, first evening, actually, we, we spotted a moose that we thought was 60 inches, uh, put it to bed in the saddle. We made our stock on it. Uh, I actually crawled into to 45 yards of that bull. He was bedded and, I, I kick myself because I, I definitely had opportunities um, that I could have drawn and, and shot that bull, but I just fell in love with this idea of like getting closer, you know, I, and I just kept getting closer and closer. And uh, I just thought, man, I'm going to crawl up to like 20 yards and shoot this bull. It's going to be this epic thing. And what in the past is um, I got to about 45 yards. I was waiting for it to, you know, either kind of turn its head so I could get closer or stand uh, where I thought I could make a shot. But what happened is um, there was a grizzly that came down the ridge above us and that bull winded it. And he just stood up and turned and trotted just dead away from me and didn't, didn't offer me a shot. So that was kind of a bum deal. Um, I don't know if you've heard, but we actually ended up circling, you know, upwind of this grizzly and, and trying to to get away from it um it was between us and our packs and and we actually ended up getting charged by this bear and it was it was a whole deal man but he uh yeah steven actually ended up shooting that grizzly which he had a tag for as an alaskan resident but he actually ended up shooting that bear at like 25 yards because it was you know full tilt full charge so um yeah, that was my first day in Alaska. And <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, it was pretty gnarly. Um, you know, I was uh, an adrenaline dump to say the least. You know, I was pretty wound up that night when I got back to camp. It was tough to sleep for sure. Um, but yeah, you know, the actual bull that I shot, uh, Steve was in camp, uh, fleshing that bear hide, and I climbed up on a ridge to glass and, and ended up seeing this bull. And uh, I took a game bag and ran it up my hiking stick, you know, my trekking pole and flagged to Steve to say, hey, you know, there's a, a shooter bull I've got spotted. So Steve made his way up to where I was. Um, we looked at this bull and both of us thought it was, you know, the, the caliber bull that we wanted to shoot. And um, so we took off after it. Uh, in the meantime, it had bedded down in a, you know, in a slough. And uh, I thought, you know, this was going to give me an opportunity to, to maybe make a stock with my bow. Uh, as we got closer to it, um, another bull came in, which was a younger bull. I had a couple of cows, uh, and it was grunting. And uh, I thought, man, this is going to work out great. This bigger bull is going to come in and, you know, beat this other bull up. And, you know, it's going to leave me right in between the two of them uh, with a you know perfect opportunity for a shot. And I don't know what was going on. I don't know if it was like pre-rut or, or what exactly, or maybe even post, but, um, you know, this bigger bull, he got up and then just started walking away from this other bull. He just didn't want any part of it, even though he was a much bigger bull. And, uh, at that point I, I thought, man, you know, he's going to walk out of my life forever if I don't make a decision. So at that point I decided to, to shoot him with a rifle. So I think it was about, uh, it was over 300 yards, might've been 380 390 yard shot um with a, a 300 ultra mag um i shot him i want to say twice um good you know both of them good shots um i may have missed him once as well so it might have been three but he he did eventually end up just tipping over right there um i think he died maybe about a mile from camp um 
Yeah, as far as like packing moose goes, I mean, Alaska's got one of the you know the most strict uh, policies when it comes to meat retrieval, you know, of any any state. I mean, you have to take every bit of meat, and you have to take meat on quarters. So it's not like you can bone that out and throw it in a game bag. So you're hauling, you know, moose quarters and uh, you know ribs <laughs> and yeah. everything. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and it, it took us, I mean, that it took us about a full day, the rest of that day, to get that moose broken down. Um, I think we went out that night with one load, and then uh, the entire next day, you know, dark to dark, packing, packing moose meat. So I think we ended up, you know, head, cape, and then all the meat. I think we were about five uh, to six trips per person, per moose. Oh, that is insane. What a workload. Yeah, man, that's going to test your moose shape. Alaska moose shape, that's a whole nother level. Tons of work. Mm. You know what else is a ton of work that I didn't anticipate was just uh, the amount of time and work is re- that's required to, to process those. So once we got back into town, we rented a, like a little, uh, you know, a little hotel room, a little apartment, and we, we took that next day. I think we started processing meat, and we weren't like, you know, cutting into steaks or anything like that. We were just basically cutting and trimming to, to a point where we could fly it back in, in Rubbermaid totes. And that took us, you know, 11.30 the one morning till almost 3 o'clock the next morning. I mean, it took us a whole day to cut moose up. I mean, they are giant animals. They are, and they're delicious. So, dude, we didn't even talk about draw stuff yet. Um, I'm going to go fast and kind of fire away on some questions on Wyoming, specifically elk, because this is Elk Shape Podcast. Uh, The draw just came up really fast. Here it is. You guys got till probably close to the end of January, early February. Uh, What's the deadline? The 31st of January, last day of January. Okay, so they changed the the rule this year. Give us a recap on that rule for as far as draw results. Yeah, so they're going to release the draw results the third week of May, uh, and they're going to give you until May 8th if you want to modify your uh, application, but you still have to apply if, as a non-resident by January 31st, and then, like I said, you'll have until May 8th to modify or withdraw your, uh, your application. So that's the only change. Um, it's kind of a bum deal because – you know, Wyoming requires you to front the cost of the permits that you that you apply for. So essentially, they're going to be holding on to that money for three and a half, four months. And then as far as Wyoming, like they have an idea as far as these hunts, but they don't know the exact quotas till May. Yeah, they have to go through their uh, their approval process, like through the commission process. So they won't know um, the exact permit numbers. So what they're trying to do, uh, in theory, is give people you know the most current, up to date information, and then allow them to make a decision, you know, and modify their application if need be. Um, you know, personally, I would just love to see them move their application timeframe back to you know open it up May first and close it on the thirty first or something, just like they do for elk or for uh, antelope and deer. But we'll we'll see. And then as far as people in the game, like maybe they don't want Wyoming to hold on to their loot for five months. I mean, we're talking 700 to $1,200 for a non-resident to get a regular or special. Uh, they can just buy points only, what, July 1st through October? Yep, yep. So July 1st, October 31st, you can just simply log in and uh, purchase a point. And 
that's something worth noting also is that they used to, if you applied for a tag and didn't draw, you were unsuccessful, you would automatically get a point. And um, for elk, that's no longer the case. Um, you actually have to, even if you're unsuccessful, you still have to log in in July to October and buy a point. So ridiculous. So ridiculous. Uh, and then what things would people actually modify before the deadline? Like what would you say people are going to, the game commission will make their decisions and then are people going to like pull out of a specific unit as their first choice and put a different one in? Is that what the, you're going to see? It, it could be. I mean, you could see an, an increase in permits in some units or maybe a slight decrease in, in other units. Um, I think it's probably really of more interest to guys that are sitting on, you know, max points, which is 14, and they're maybe vying for a few permits or, you know, maybe another unit has a, a couple added and they think, ah, I'm going to jump over to that unit, maybe increase my chances. So at that point, it might give people a, a leg up. But for the most part, I don't anticipate you'll see a bunch of, you know, a bunch of change, a bunch of modifications. Okay. Uh, is there anything else we should add to a quick overview of the Wyoming elk specific draw? Um, I mean, apply if you can, um, you know, there's a random, a random component. They, they take 25% of their permits, uh, for each hunt, which is going to be randomly allocated. So, you know, if you can afford to front that money and let it sit on your credit card, you might as well throw your name in for a permit. Um, if you decide not to, or if you're unsuccessful, I mean, buy a point points are, you know, they're, they're still worth something in Wyoming and, well, I guess the last thing I would say in, in, in regards to Wyoming elk is, um, you know, don't brush off the general season hunt. Um, you can hunt 50 plus units that are general season. You can archery hunt with an archery stamp. Uh, then you can return and hunt with a rifle. There's some really good hunting on general season units in Wyoming. I would say, you know, potentially it's as good as it's ever been. So, you know, don't brush that off. Does Wyoming look at your first choice and then they go through everybody's first choice and then they move on to the second choice how does that work yeah so um they're gonna look at everybody's first choice uh before moving to anybody's second choice um you only lose your points if you draw a permit as a first choice so you can draw a permit as a second choice uh and retain your points um there aren't a lot of opportunities to do so i would say most of those are going to be either you know in the full price draw type four and type five which your antler of elk uh, permits but that is an option for you um another question i get asked quite a bit is like well what's the difference between a full price and a reduced price um so those are actually two different drawings um reduced price tags are going to be your type six seven and eight um that's a separate draw those are antlerless elk and uh, no point system and if you apply and draw a uh, cow tag in that draw it's not going to impact your points at all for the full price draw so that's another you know little tip or, or tidbit that, that i get asked pretty pretty well, often that's a pretty good nugget right there i would say uh a guy like say somebody wants to hunt wyoming general they should probably go first choice general yeah, it used to be that you could draw that as a second choice, but those those days are gone. Um, it's probably going to require, you know, two and a half to three points in the regular draw and then, you know, possibly one and a half to uh, two points in the special draw for a general mm. season tag. There you go, guys. Uh, Arizona's coming up, too. They usually open up, I think. Uh, are they open right now? Uh, not yet, but they, they will be shortly. Yeah, oh. it's typically a February time frame. 
So anybody's pretty serious about hunting out of state, uh, that's probably a pretty good state to put in for. They do have some random, but uh, they do also do a good job of getting rewarding those with a lot of points. Uh, let's just go over how the Arizona draw works in a nutshell. Yeah, so you're going to get two hunt choices. Um, they have a, a bonus point pass, and then they have a random pass. Um, I would say, you know, jump in and, and check your odds. Um, look to see what, you know, might be possible. Um, you want to um, kind of stagger your choices. So, you know, first first choice, your best choice, second choice, you know, your, your second best hunt. Um, they are going to consider both of those before moving to the next applicant. So, you know, that's, you know, both of your, your choices are going to be considered. Um, you know, there is a random component to it. So a couple of years ago, there, there used to be there was 10% um, that could go to non-residents. Uh, currently, uh, five, up to 5% is guaranteed to a non-resident. And then uh, the other 5% um, uh, is a random draw that could go to a non-resident, but it's not exclusive to non-residents. So, um, you know, there's still a random component to that. Um I think probably the most interesting thing when I talk about Arizona and elk with people, pe people look at their draw system and they start to look at all the top tier hunts and, you know, they just look at the odds and they think, man, it's ridiculous. It's probably not worth applying for at all, but you know, don't, don't, uh, don't pass over some of the elk opportunities and some of the lesser known units uh, in, in Arizona. And, you know, there's some late season archery hunts that still have really, really good odds and some of the best units in the state that you could draw with maybe three or four or five points. Uh, so don't, you know, don't look past those. There's still some really good hunts uh, to be had in Arizona. Well, there you go. I'd say the late Arizona game is a, is uh this is from experience is not an easy hunt i will just throw that out there so if you're looking to really get the best hunt experience ever in arizona and you're younger you probably better save up for a rut tag and just keep playing the game uh if you're older maybe you ought to cash in but just know it's not a gimme hunt that's a that's a really hard hunt either in areas that you can glass a long ways and see bull like awesome bulls but getting in tight is really hard with the terrain and the swirling winds and then there's a lot of country that's just, you know, pinion, juniper, and it is not a glassing game, and they're not bugling, and it could be a wet year, could be a dry year. It's just, it's just tough. So, and the residents of Arizona can draw those late season stuff pretty frequently. So it's, you're, it's, it is going to be, uh, you're not going to have the woods to yourself. I'll say that. Um, but I love, I love Arizona. I think they manage like really, really well for the elk numbers that they actually have. They, they do a a bang up job. Well, Tro, I don't know if we can get you back on here as other draws come. I know you're busy. Um, let's go over, let's finish with kind of like must apply states, best states to consider a OTC, just kind of these blue collar guys listening that maybe can't afford to put in for all the states, maybe boil it down to one or two states to maybe play the point game in and then obviously your OTC states that you should start learning the country and start going back year after year. Yeah. So I, I think first I'll probably jump in because those are the, the easy ones, kind of the low hanging fruit. Your, your opportunity states are going to be states like Colorado, uh, which still has over the counter archery uh, elk hunting opportunities. They've got the largest elk herds in the nation. Um, you know, tons of opportunity to go there and just pick up a tag and go hunting. So I would say uh, Colorado and then Idaho, um, which you're familiar with, you've hunted it 
um, you know, still has some really good over-the-counter uh, archery elk hunting. Um, those tags are going, you know, quicker. So if that's something that you uh, are interested in, I would really start looking and researching um, those opportunities right now and, and plan on getting a permit as soon as possible. Um, so those are really your best two opportunity states. Um you know, Wyoming and uh, Montana. So Montana, just the general combo, elk combo tag is still a really good tag that you can pick up pretty easily. Um, if you decide to go that route, that's a good opportunity. Uh, you do still have to draw it as a non-resident. Uh, Wyoming's the same. Um, you know, the general season's a really killer hunt. Uh, but like I said, it is going to take maybe one and a half to three points, depending on which draw you put in for, uh, to draw that permit. Um, so that's a good opportunity, but it does take a little bit of planning and prep. Um, states like Utah, that's the long game. I mean, you may be applying for your entire life to draw a permit and, and still might not draw it. It's really tough to draw an elk tag in Utah. But at the same time, it's only 65 bucks for a hunting license for $10 uh, extra per species. You can apply for any and all species as a non-resident. So I think Utah is a great state to apply for because there is a random component to that. You could draw the tag of a lifetime. Uh, It's not all that expensive to apply here. So I think Utah is a good state to apply in. Uh, I think Colorado, like I mentioned, um, you know, great opportunity for over-the-counter, but also a good opportunity for some really low, easy draw units. Um, You know, units that take maybe one to five, six, seven points to draw. So build some points in Colorado uh, as well. Um, Arizona, we just talked about, I think you ought to be picking up points in Arizona and applying there. Um, I guess, you know, I should say apply, you know, there's a random component you should apply and you're going to get a point, uh, if you're unsuccessful. So it's a little bit more expensive, but you know, a great state to apply. Um, one that I never miss out on, which is one of my favorite states to hunt is New Mexico. Um, no point system at all, which I kind of appreciated, you know, at this stage in the game. Um, you get three hunt choices, so you can kind of stagger those, um, you know, swing for the fences on your first one, then maybe stagger those down to some hunts that uh, have better odds that you would still go on and have a good hunt. Um, there's some really good elk hunting in New Mexico, so I would say, you know, apply there. You're only out the 65 bucks plus the uh, license app fee, so it's, you know, not too expensive to have a chance for a really good hunt. Um, Nevada is one of those states where it's like, I don't know if it's worth it to apply for elk at this point. I mean, it is a a random draw with a bonus point system, but, and their elk hunts are extremely tough to draw for a non-resident. Phenomenal hunting if you draw a tag, uh, but it is expensive. It's going to cost you, you know, 154 bucks for the hunting license plus your application fee. Um, if you apply for all species in Nevada, I mean, you're going to be into that maybe 235 bucks or so. So that's a, a pretty expensive investment every year. Um, I can tell you how I justify that at home. And that's, you know, with my wife, I tell her, Hey, I'm going to draw an antelope tag or a deer tag every five or six years. So that's how I keep applying in Nevada. But, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the truth too. That's a great, uh, recap. I think one of the over-the-counter states that doesn't get enough press is Oregon. I think that's another – I mean, their elk numbers are super legit, and the people listening to Oregon hate me because I always bring up Oregon. But, man, I'm telling you guys, you got some good elk hunting to be had in there, especially the eastern side. There's some pretty nasty country to hunt. And then, um, you know, if you want to get into that Roosevelt, there might not be a better state out west for Rosies. Um, let's finish with point creep a little bit, Trail, because I know you know about it. And maybe explain to guys, I guess, recap, what is point creep? And how to recognize if you're in point purgatory, like say you're like me, 
with 13 points in Colorado. And when you started the game, you thought, man, someday I'm going to hunt that northwest corner of Colorado. Now you realize you probably aren't even going to be able to draw unit 76 because it's just too many guys in front of you. What is point creep and how do you know when you're in it? Yeah, so states that have point systems, so Colorado is a great example. It's a, a true preference point state where they get um, you know, the permits for each hunt to the guys with the most points. And uh, unfortunately, we're hunting a, you know, a, a small resource. So you only have so many you know, elk and you have a lot of people that want to hunt elk. And you have a lot of people that have built points. Um, you know, those units that you're talking about there in that northwest corner of Colorado, there's only so many permits because they, they manage that for a quality experience. So what happens is you draw out the tags every year, and it, it just takes one additional point every year because there's more applicants than there are permits. So, you know, like you said, it might have taken 15 points, and then the next year, 16 and 17 and 18, and, and then on down the road you go. Um I think I've calculated this out at one time for one of those elk units in that area of the state. And it seemed like if you were at like the 15 point level currently, you could still be waiting like another hundred years or something for permit, just some astronomical <laughs> number, you know, like you'll, you'll never draw it. Um, so that's what point creep is. Um, I would say the easiest way, um, and that's, we're really good at this is that uh, if you, you're an insider, um, when you go to the, the standalone draw odds page and then you click on a, each individual hunt that you might be interested in, it's going to give you what we call a detailed draw odds page. And that's going to give you the uh, draw odds for that hunt over the last five years. And you're going to be able to see how many permits were allocated at each point level over time. And you'll also be able to see how many people are at your same point level. So you can kind of use that. Uh, to calculate out over how many years you might be waiting for any given permit. So that's probably one of the best ways is, is just to use your insider account and, and just look at that. Um, it's a problem. I mean, it's, it's gotten me really a little bit depressed for my, you know, my kids looking forward, you know, like in my home state here in Utah, I don't know that my kids will ever draw an elk tag unless they address it at some point, but um, yeah, it's, it's tough, Dan, man. It's, it's rough. Point creeps are a real thing. No doubt. The the other couple things you got to keep in mind too, like there are states where like you pull up, go hunt, you put your stuff in, say, let's just say Colorado, and I put in, I got 13 points, and I pull it up and it shows that I'm 100% going to draw that. That doesn't necessarily reflect that there could be hundreds of people up in front of me with all these points and they're like, screw this, I'm cashing in my points, and they put in for that unit. And I'm like, I don't draw. And I'm like, well, hey, what the heck? Go Hunt said I was going to be 100%. You gotta, you can't account for the people that are exiting the game and burning points. Yeah, and I mean, we, I get this quite a bit, but we, we, we can't predict odds. Like, you, you don't, you just can't. There's too many variables that people might, you know, jump into that unit. They may reduce the number of tags. They may increase the number of tags. It's, you can't predict an odd. Really what you can do is just take – you know, a really good look, um, an accurate, detailed report of what happened in the last draw. And then, you know, even, like I said before, the last few draws to kind of put together a trend um, and then use that as your best case scenario. But, yeah, I mean, reality is you, you can. You can you can get point jumped. I, I should have drawn a mountain goat tag three years ago, but I just got jumped every year by guys that were bouncing in from other units. So 
That's right. That's right. Now, one thing that I'm curious about is every state's a little different on harvest reporting. seems like some states it's mandatory or you can't buy a tag the next year. And then some states it's just like, oh, we'll call and see how your hunt went maybe. Um, do you guys struggle to get those harvest reports? Do you just bug the crap out of these agencies? And then when do those, when do you usually get that, that information to publish? Yeah. So our data, and I tell people this all the time, our data is really only as good as what the, you know, the state collects and, and goes after. And it's like you said, there's a lot of states that are really good at it where it's mandatory. And then there's some, some states, um, Montana, that <laughs> aren't the best. Aren't Montana. Montana. <laughs> <laughs> collecting uh, harvest statistics. Um, you know, Idaho's awesome. They do really good. They even collect the number of, you know, six-point bulls that are harvested out of out of their statistics. So it's great. Um, but yeah, we're, we're just, you know, we're cruising. We're talking. At this point, we're, we're grateful that we have pretty good connections with the state agency. So a lot of that data is, is a little bit easier to come by. Um, it typically comes out like late spring um, for the, the previous fall hunt. So we would expect to start seeing harvest statistics, you know, coming through in, you know, maybe March, April timeframe. And then um, when we get those and we start pulling them, um, we've got guys here that, that are crunching those numbers and putting them through spreadsheets and, and double checking and everything. And then after that, it typically goes up on the site pretty quick. So I would say by like, you know, May, June, we, we've got most of them updated typically. Cool. Trail, so people can keep up with you. I know you're on Instagram. How can people just get a hold of you or follow along your journey? Yeah, so you can find me on uh, Instagram just at trailk11, um, just Trail Chrysler. And then uh, I'm on Facebook, but I'm I'm not real active at all. So, in fact, it's, it's been a while since I've logged into Facebook, so you may not find much on there. Um, you can reach out to me here at the office. Um, I have a couple of lines that you can call if you've got questions. Uh, my number here is 702-847-8747, and uh, my extensions are either three or four. And then you can always shoot me an email, uh, which is just trail, T-R-A-I-L, at gohunt.com. There it is. Hey, are you going to ATA? I am, yeah. I actually leave uh, tomorrow. i got an early morning flight on Wednesday, and then I'm there through Friday. Cool. I'll, well, I hope to see you give you a handshake and go from there. But uh, I think I get in Thursday. I'm getting, I'm getting a late start this year, but that's okay. Nice. Yeah, it'd be good. Well, appreciate your time, man. And uh, we'll talk more down the road, but uh would love to maybe bring you back on as some more draws come up and we won't go as long or deep into your hunting season, but man, your wealth of knowledge, appreciate your time. And uh, we'll talk offline here in a second and uh, maybe we can figure out a call to action to get these guys excited or check out gohunt.com. And this is Trail. This is the Elk Shape Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, guys. All right, guys, I hope you really enjoyed that as much as I did. Trail is super sharp guy, and uh, I hope to get him back on uh, once a few more draws come up here especially with Colorado. I think they're making some pretty big changes. We'll come to find out real quick. Uh, New Mexico made a small little tweak. It's not like a, a big change, but the way they set it up is the, like only, I think 84% of all the tags go to residents. 10% of the tags go to guides. So if you hired a guide, you're in that draw. And then 6% is just to you regular over-the-counter schmucks or, or non-residents that don't want a guide. 
you DIYers. And in years past, if they had a certain amount of tags allocated for a hunt, if the non-resident 6% was, how do I explain this? I would just say this, they would round up tags. So if like uh, there was only 60 tags available and they needed to bump one tag up so non-residents actually had 6%, they would, they would just add a tag. They're not gonna do that anymore. So if it comes out and there's only 5.1% uh, non-resident tags, non-guided, then uh, they'll round down. And uh, so the, you might lose out on a tag here or there in certain units, but it's, it's not a huge change. It's just a, a set in stone way of making sure that uh, non-residents don't get any extra tags. So uh, Montana's coming up. They did go to paperless on their actual harvest tag. So when you draw Montana, you'll just print out your tag. Now you can keep your license on your phone and that's cool, but you got to print your tag out. They're trying to cut some costs there and uh, it's not that big of a deal to me. I think you can print it out on a on a sheet of paper and put it in a Ziploc bag and you got your tag. So uh, what other changes are co I think Colorado, like I said, uh, I don't want to say exactly what they're thinking, but it looks like uh, uh, some big changes. Let's just say that. And we'll try to bring on somebody from Hunt and Full or Go Hunt or some other resource, somebody who's way better at this stuff than I am and go from there. So uh, last thing I want to say, the last call to action would be this. If you are thinking about coming to any of the elk-shaped camps and the only thing getting in the way of you coming and having your life catapulted and your game elevated is just dollar bills, you just can't afford it no matter what, email me. Shoot me an email, elkshape at gmail.com. I will try to work with you a little bit. For those that can't afford it, don't come at me because, look, we're paying our subject matter experts well. We're paying for everybody's travel. That's airplane tickets. That's uh, those are Lyft rides or Uber rides, and those are or rent a car and hotel and time away from family. And we're all traveling, and so there's some overhead here. And we got some great sponsors for the camps. And I just want to end the podcast with just going through those real quick. I'm gonna forget some because there's so many, but the the ones that stand out is somebody who comes to Elk Shape Camp is winning a brand new Matthews VXR. So. Out of the seven camps, everybody who comes to a camp, your name goes in a drawing. Somebody's winning that bow. The cool thing is, is Lakewood is hooking it up with a double bow case with a Matthews logo on that bow case. So you're going to have a bow case. That's really badass for that bow. Baku is going to donate an e-bike, the mule. That's a several, several thousand dollar prize. And your odds of winning that is one in 120 to 140. It's pretty good odds. Somebody's going to win that bike delivered to their doorstep. Uh, we have several sponsors that are just giving us a bunch of random prizes to give away at each camp. Sick of Gears hooking up some core lightweight hoodies. That's my favorite top. So I can give three away at each camp. Tight Spot Quivers is hooking me up with some quivers. Whether you're right-handed or left-handed, just let me know. Uh, pretty much every company I work with is giving some sort of private exclusive discount code, if not some prizes. XO Mountain Gear, Everybody's going to get an Onyx Hunt premier membership to the state of their choice. Uh, the list goes on. If they work with us, they're helping you guys, and I think that's really cool. So probably three or four times as many prizes as last year. It's pretty exciting. Go to elkshape.com, click on the camps, find the closest one, and get to it. Thanks for listening, guys. You have a lot of choices. We appreciate you listening to this Blue Collar Podcast. Have a great week. We'll catch you on the next one.